This is a Scrap Studio production and you're listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. And before we start, here is a short message from one of our listeners. Hi, I'm Laura Skolarski and I'm an active member of the Neurotech community. I love listening to Scraps because it puts me in touch with the latest and most exciting happenings in the biosciences. It leaves me feeling both inspired and connected to the innovation that is happening in the field. Give it a try and I'm sure you will love it as much as I do. If you already do, make sure that you subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. It really warms our hearts to hear from listeners like Laura. Laura, thank you. If you feel like you need to provide us feedback, you can do one of two things. You can either record a short audio like what Laura did and send it in to our email address at scrapspodcast at gmail.com. Or if you feel more comfortable reaching out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn to tell us about both the good and the bad, links to our profiles is in the episode description. Next, I want to give a special thanks and appreciation to our sponsors and donors, Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical. Without their kind help and recognition of our efforts, we would not be able to foot the bills to do this production. So thank you to the teams at Cortec and Certec for believing in us to drive engagement and awareness around bioelectronic medicines. And did I say that both Jojo and I do this because we love doing it, not because we have something to gain from it? So we really hope you like what we're doing. This is Scraps Bioelectronic Medicines. Our guest today is a good friend, a former colleague, and even someone that I collaborated and funded while being the head of discovery at Galvani Bioelectronics. Victor and I have known each other for close to a decade now, and I still remember the first conversation we had back in 2013, after being introduced to each other by another common friend, Brian McLaughlin, who is currently the CEO of Microleads. Over the years, I've always admired Victor's passion, resourcefulness, go-getter attitude, and more importantly to me, he is the only, and I repeat, the only person I know of who can speak eloquently and knowledgeably about all aspects of bioelectronic medicines, be it physiology or engineering. As we plan the season here, Jojo and I wanted to capture some key learnings that so often gets buried in the small print, but are so important to how we approach bioelectronic medicines, specifically electrical stimulation of nerves. Do you know why? Let me explain. If one is developing a drug, you think about what the target is, how that molecular target modulates function in health and disease. Then a drug discovery team figures out what the best chemical starting point is. Then chemical design happens followed by synthesis to then testing it in animal studies to determine the properties of what the drug the chemical molecule does to the body and what the body does to the drug. These properties then govern if a given molecule should be formulated as an intravenous injection, an intramuscular injection or an oral dosing. In some cases, if the disease is localized, say in the case of asthma to the airways, it can be given as an aerosol. Now, with that knowledge, if you turn around and look at bioelectronic medicines, and specifically 
electrical stimulation which has been in vogue for a long time. We so often in the field do not openly talk about these properties. It almost made us at Scraps wonder, should we do it? And should we discuss it more openly for two reasons? The first one being to bring to light the various considerations that frankly, in the early days of bioelectronics at GSK, a very well-known executive described it as voodoo. And I spent the next hour of lunch badgering him with facts to make him understand and more importantly to let him know that his view of modulating nerves as voodoo is frankly wrong. Secondly, we want to change the conversation of exploring therapeutics as not just as a drugs only option. We want to demonstrate that bioelectronic medicines has the capability and frankly history to do this as well. And there is emerging evidence to show that this voodoo feeling is changing across the entire field as a range of new nerve targets are being explored. So who better to talk about these key considerations of nerve stimulation? Product development for invasive and non-invasive neuromodulation than our lovely friend, Victor Peikoff. Can I also say that our collaborative paper on nerve blocking was the first demonstration of chronic nerve block in an autonomic nerve outside the sciatic nerve? So we have a history and it was a very intense discussion. So lock yourself in with those headphones, fasten those seat belts and let's go. Okay. Thanks, Victor, for joining us. Um, I think it's going to be a very good discussion on the various aspects of, of electrical stimulation and the various various ways in which one can stimulate nerves either directly or in close proximity versus something that's a bit far away. So let's actually talk about the various considerations that we need to undertake between invasive, non-invasive stimulation of nerves. And with an invasive, we can actually take into account both cuff-based direct activation and then percutaneous activation of nerves. Um, and if there is any other things that we need to consider, uh, we, can, we can consider all of those as well. Um, so just as a first step, I think let's maybe take the the principles of electrical activation and which I think both of us are very much aware of, but just for the sake of the audience, it might be extremely useful just to say, what are the things that we need to observe as basic principles when we stimulate nerves? And then we can move into invasive versus non-invasive practices. So do you want to get us started on that, Victor? And then I'll probably chip in as and when required, but but you do most of the talking. Hello, everybody. Uh, yes. Hi, Ron. This is Victor. Nice to for you to invite me. And this is actually a topic that's really exciting to me because our companies pursuing both implantable, non-implantable, so have been doing some research on this uh, in terms of both financial aspects and feasibility and reimbursement, things like that. So to, to kick off this, um, I, I would like to start with an example uh, so people have just last year published a study where they compared looking at, for example, a nerve such as vagus, cervical vagus. Uh, they actually did in the same patient, uh, in that case was like a large animal comparison, how much it would take to stimulate that nerve and observe an effect. And they would see that 
they would need about 20 times more current with a transcutaneous stimulation. And the efficacy, so the effect on the organ function was about half at that. So, so you can see that, if, and of course, it comes with a added uh, procedure time because you have to place the electrode. And the patients, of course, sometimes don't even know where the nerves are located. So you have to do it in the office in many cases. So I think when we talk about the efficacy, we should also take into consideration the safety, convenience, and uh, the disease kind of uh, burden on the patient. Because I guess depending on the burden of the disease, because different diseases, patients will be less or more favorable to implantable. So I think those are kind of main aspects to me for at least patient's perspective. So let's actually take each one of those elements separately then, Victor. So let's actually talk about just the principles to start with, which is when we try to directly place a cuff electrode um, or in animal experiments, a hook electrode directly to stimulate nerves, which are which are basically two wires uh, that are made of silver or platinum to ultimately stimulate the nerves uh, intraoperatively, or in the case of what is referred to as a cuff electrode, it's basically these platinum kind of foil contacts that are somehow uh, embedded in silicon type of material uh, to to give it a lot more kind of consistency in terms of activation of nerves. Contrast that to what we actually know about and that's been in vogue uh, in the neuromodulation area, which is the percutaneous stimulation. So let's just take that and then we'll move into kind of transcutaneous stimulation in just a second. So tell us about what the difference is between a direct activation using a cuff electrode versus potentially what people will refer to as kind of a field activation using a close proximity percutaneous lead. Yeah, both of these, of course, would be considered impl- uh, implantable, uh, but one would be considered more invasive, one is less invasive. So um, so the percutaneous one uh, company, for example, SPR or some others, they, they are minimally invasive procedures, so you can actually do it in outpatient office under local anesthesia. Um, when you have to implant the cuff, uh, in many cases, although not in all, it, it depends on the location of the nerve. You have to do general anesthesia, but actually that's not the case for all of the nerves. Some nerves are accessible, you can do it under local anesthesia. But again, we have to make a distinction here that we're only talking about super, superficial nerves, nerves that are maybe within one centimeter from the surface. If we're talking about deeper nerves, that then by default you need general anesthesia. And the deeper nerves, so just to contrast that, right? So the superficial nerves will be the ones like the median nerve or the radial nerve or or other aspects like the tibial nerve, etc. Tibial nerve, cervical, vagus. Which can all be accessed both via transcutaneous stimulation using some form of an electrode or necessarily through a wire, a small flexible wire that is inserted with contacts to stimulate these nerves, right? And which one actually provides a greater control? I just want to go back to that initial comment that you made, which is you actually need a lot more current with respect to transcutaneous stimulation to compare to a direct in-contact activation of the nerves. A variation of a percutaneous stimulation is, a, is what is invoked for neuromodulation for a large number of years, right? With deep brain stimulation, which is itself is field activation, spinal cord stimulation, which is again not something that is conformal, uh, around the nerve target, it's basically an activation, a field activation from a set number of contacts, dorsal root ganglion stimulation. So there are a lot of examples in the literature with with leads that are 
akin to percutaneous stimulation. And the cuff-based stimulation are the approaches that we know of, like the vagal nerve stimulation or the hyperglossal nerve stimulation. Companies like Cybernics uh, or the Levanova, what is now Levanova system, vagal nerve stimulation for, for treatment uh, for many neurological disorders and hypoglossal stimulation for treatment of sleep apnea as two examples that we can take. And is, is there enough data for us to conveniently say that a cuff electrode-based system is, is definitely the best way to stimulate nerves unlike uh, compared to, say, a percutaneous approach? Victor, what is your opinion on that? Um, in terms of efficacy, uh, I think you, of course, get more current spread from percutaneous electrode because of its geometry. It's a cylindrical electrode and therefore current goes in all directions, while in cough it only goes pretty much toward the nerve. So in my estimate, maybe I would say between 5 to 10 times loss you would have for percutaneous compared to the cough because of the concentration of current. Uh, that, but that doesn't mean that you have 5 to 10 uh, times more uh, chance of a safety, uh, safety risk because typically nerves are separated from each other unless we're talking about cervical vagus, which is pretty close to a lot of other nerves. But most of other nerves in our body are quite distinct from each other. So even though you have some bigger current spread, the only really side effect would be a little bit of twitching of the muscle, maybe, uh, for some of them. So I, I don't think that doesn't directly translate the, this current spread to the safety profile, but it, it is worse. Uh, so in terms of efficacy, yes, you have to crank up the current five to 10 times more. But that's feasible. So instead of one milliamp, you get 10 milliamps, which is still quite reasonable. Uh, yeah, I think in terms of safety and efficacy, they're both comparable, those two types. Uh, I would say high uh, compared to TENS devices, which I would consider like moderate efficacy. And then when we move that argument forward into kind of more of the transcutaneous approach, and let's actually take examples of things that are kind of out in the market say or things that are being developed for various disorders so we actually have the the transcutaneous vagal stimulation as one example we have the auricular vagal stimulation or the tragus stimulation as another example and then the tibial nerve systems that are being developed for for, for treatment of urgent contents of the bladder is another great example all of which are have undergone clinical trials in various forms what things that we need to kind of keep in mind when we talk about transcutaneous stimulation compared to reasonably direct activation, be it with cuff or invasive um, activation of nerves. Do you want to tell us about that? So if we talk specifically about cervical vagus activation, uh, most of the diseases that are treatable right now by VNS, uh, vagal nerve stimulation, are requiring stimulation of afferents, uh, afferents in the VNS rather than efferents. And therefore, from that point of view, stimulating of auricular branch versus the main trunk of the cervical vagus is comparable. Uh, if you really want to stimulate efferent directly, then, of course, you probably have to go to the trunk of the vagus directly. So then gamma core, electrocore, that's the main approach. But if you uh, are treating one of those typical diseases such as hypertension or heart failure or even epilepsy. A lot of other diseases that are currently prescribed for VNS are afferent stimulation. There, I think the uh, auricular offers two advantages. Number one, it's safer 
because it's further away from other nerves. Like I mentioned before, current spread is an issue with transcutaneous. So with the ear placement, you're far away from other nerves, facial nerves or any other nerves. Uh, and therefore, side effects are lower. And secondly, well, on side effects, it's also less a chance that you're activating efferents going to the heart and respiration, and therefore you're affecting less of other organs. So safety is higher, and and efficacy is comparable. It might actually be higher because you're only stimulating uh, essentially afferents, and therefore you're taking advantage of our gain amplifier essentially in the brainstem, which will amplify that signal before it's sent uh, to the efferent VNS. So in fact, you're using our own built-in amplifier in our body. Yeah. So there is also a basic difference that, that I want to kind of bring out here. And, and let me see what your impressions on these are as well. One of them is the, is the manner in which these things are routinely used from a usability perspective, which is stimulating the, the auricular vagus is akin to putting somebody chucking in their, their earphones into their ear for listening to music, right? So it's, I mean, most of the systems that are being developed is very similar, or some of them might actually have a bit of a ear clip. And if anybody is on Facebook, they can actually go and look at multiple Facebook groups for where people will actually buy tens units from, from pharmacies and actually kind of use it for multiple things from depression to kind of other things. And it's, it's pretty amazing to actually read how much people actually tend to experiment, self-experiment. And people on, whenever people talk about self-experimentation, they only talk about drugs. But I think even with electrical stimulation and especially with vagal, uh, with auricular vagal stimulation, I think they actually tend to experiment a lot more, uh, especially with the advent of with more TENS unit available in the pharmacy shelves, etc., but one of the key things that you're actually highlighting is the is the placement of of the electrode in pro, in the close proximity to the nerves that ultimately will dictate the tolerability effects versus the safety effects because if you're surgically placing it a surgeon who has a clear knowledge of 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 where to place it how to place it um and ensure that they're titrating the stimulation according to what is tolerable, etc. That doesn't mean that you won't have anything and all the clinical cervical vagal stimulation with implantable cuff electrodes have shown that I think even the titration protocol is largely dependent on the tolerability effects and if they, somebody has to go from 0 to 3 milliamps, they can't jump from 0 to 3 milliamps in one step. They actually have to slowly titrate it up such that the side effects become more tolerable. Yeah. And these side effects are largely alterations in vocal tone, cough and swallowing and, and multiple other local activation of the muscle fibers in the neck that the patient might actually feel, etc. Right. So I think the difference is that with invasive stimulation, you're at least with the existing two electrode cuffs that are being used clinically, you're trying to get to that optimization of the therapeutic window, which is what you do. Whereas with the auricular vagus, what determines how high one can actually go? Or let's say for things like with, with Electrocore, uh, which is a gamma core product that they have, I think they actually have a specific way in which you can place it on the neck, dial the current up, and then if you basically see, uh, at least a few years ago when I saw the product, there's something along the lines of, if you're activating the facial muscles, you'll actually see a slight stretching of, of the muscles of the cheek to one side and that's when you basically dial it down so there is no clear-cut way of knowing what is 
exactly going to be the parameter uh, and how do you determine that it's mostly defined by tolerability uh, so is there what are the considerations for a transcutaneous stimulation compared to an invasive electrical stimulation of a particular nerve target and here we're only talking about discrete nerves and not about kind of spinal cord or or deep brain stimulation based approaches which are all percutaneous fluid right so uh, let's exclude that but let's talk about purely nerve stimulation discrete nerve stimulation considerations from a transcutaneous perspective yeah so if we're only talking about transcutaneous in comparing specifically uh direct vagal stimulate uh, vagal trunk stimulation versus auricular branch i would say the main uh, uh differentiation here in terms of placing correctly is um for tr- trunk um it's almost impossible to selectively stimulate vagus. Uh, you all, all pretty much guaranteed to activate other nerves because just 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 right next to each other, sympathetics and other nerves. So um, there, even I think gamma core doesn't make this claim that they're selective hundred uh, percent. So your tolerability here essentially, as you said earlier, is due to some sensations, so twitching of muscles and some other things in auricular. You also, yes, you're also limited by twitching, but there, there's another factor is, at least from what I've seen in literature, there's two types of auricular stimulation devices, ones that are placing it in the kind of outer rim of the ear, uh, and then others that are placing inside, close to the um, uh, specific uh, branch of auricular that seems to be more relevant for diseases. So actually more and more companies recently are switching to stimulating more centrally in the ear from the rim like mesos for example right exactly but uh it requires uh electrodes that look more like earphones that go inside the ear and, and their placement is relatively easy another differentiation could be is that what i've noticed american companies mostly making electrodes that are transcutaneous while there are several German companies, like three or four, that are making needle-based electrodes, so actually percutaneous. So they're, they're increasing somewhat risks and pain factor, but also increasing potential efficacy. So I think Germans are erring on the side of better efficacy, while American companies are on the side of... Uh, um, that, that's really fascinating, right? Because I think, uh, I think there are multiple layers that you've just highlighted, which is what what do you titrate or what do you balance it against and and from a business point of view it's about how is it going to be used how is it going to be ultimately kind of uh, who's going to refer these these patients to how are the patients going to use it and and all of those are things that you're just highlighted in a nutshell with that statement so let's actually move from the direct activation aspects of of these to then talking about the usability standpoint, uh, which again you referred to at the very beginning of of, of the recording here, um, but really um, when we talk about how easy it is or how amenable um, kind of patients might actually be for the various modalities. Uh, so let's talk about it first from a patient perspective, and then let's let's pick up the physician perspective later on. But uh, so let's compare the patient perspective across the three kind of uh, areas between direct cuff electrode activation, percutaneous lead activation, and uh, and the transcutaneous stimulation. So do you have any examples that you can think of uh, in terms of experiences there or what you've heard? Well, I've seen one uh, study which uh, asked uh, about 400 patients 
about their preference. Uh, actually, not just preference, but willingness to undergo uh, implantation surgery for pain versus putting TENS device for pain. Uh, and specifically, I'm talking about implantable spinal cord stimulator versus uh, transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation. Uh, in that case, there were about 50% of uh, people, just regular people, were willing to put a TENS, uh, or sorry, implant a device with IPG for pain. And about 70% were willing, very likely, to, to use TENS device. But that's just, uh, I guess, uh, more relates to surgical aspects. On top of surgical aspects, there is an aspect of continued use or disuse. Uh, as we know, like CPAP and some other therapies, people start using them, but they just stop using them. I think TENS is one of those therapies that people initially, because it's a novelty factor, they will try it for a few weeks, but then they will stop using it, even though they keep having pain, because it's a trade-off. Okay, how much pain can I tolerate versus how much nuisance it is for me to place these electrodes and wait for an hour and do nothing else, just be stimulated. So it's people start evaluating these trade-offs. While with implanted, you don't have to make those trade-offs. Once it's implanted, it's I call it implanted and forget it. So you, you it, there's an initial, initial uh, uh, hump of resistance, but once you're over it, it's really no, no compliance issues and no resistance to use it. Because if you don't use it, it's just sitting inside of your spinal cord, not being used. So... So it's essentially convenience comes to two factors, implantation versus continued use. And, and I think in those two, if you combine them, I would say they're pretty close. Then two, two modalities come pretty and close. And there it also depends on the type of disorder that the pathology that the, yes. that the patient yes. is suffering yes. from, how much it actually limits exactly. their, their day-to-day activities and how sick they yes. might be, right? So I think someone like potentially... If you're asking for someone with with debilitating heart failure or or arthritis, uh, yes. etc., those patients might actually be more amenable to actually potentially be open for both kind of therapies, uh, depending on on what they would want, as long as it provides them the efficacy. And then Absolutely. it kind of swings over to that from a usability point standpoint to actually which one is going to provide me the greatest efficacy, yeah. et cetera. And at this point of time, we don't have enough data to compare in these disease conditions between an invasive and a non-invasive kind of stimulation. I think I think one of the exceptions, I think, where right. uh, transcutaneous stimulation works really well is in the case of, of Callahel's kind of median nerve stimulation where the nerve is pretty superficial uh, with the median nerve. They can target it using a wrist-based kind of platform and it provides, even with things, and all of us probably yes. know that you could probably take a lot more tingling on your wrist compared to taking a lot more tingling on your on your, on your your neck in, and other more sensitive exactly. regions uh, of the body. Um, yeah, especially if you're talking about the pelvic region, there you have to basically undress yourself to put electrodes so you cannot do that work. You have to be in comfortable at home situations, so it really limits where you can use this therapy. While wrist device, you can use it at work or at lunch or wherever you are. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it just comes back to just the type of disorder that the patient is suffering from, and as a result of that, how open. So I think all of these are considerations that both the patients will actually think about uh, that ultimately factors in. So now let's think about it from a physician perspective, uh, right? So and again, within the physicians, I think there is a large variance, again, depending on the speciality of the physician and the type of kind of patients that they treat. 
which is if they are treating um i'm just going to pick on say um take two disease conditions where one cohort might be more willing the other cohort may not be might be kind of uh less willing to take up an invasive therapy so heart failure and arthritis right both of them explore vagal nerve stimulation there are devices that are being tested for both of those one of them in cardiology physicians are the cardiologist and the cardiac surgeons and everybody that treats so there is some aspect of intervention or interventions that are baked into the treatment paradigm to a large extent so therefore exploring kind of a vagal nerve stimulation therapy or the CVRX as vagal stimulation therapy as one of the options for heart failure etc probably might be a lot more easier uh in that situation for physicians to actually appreciate and potentially factor into their treatment regimen whereas if you actually take into account something like say arthritis although the data is exciting from the earlier stu- early studies across m- multiple companies it is still something where a rheumatologist who basically sees these patients who is not very skilled uh, or who basically specializes in providing pharmaceuticals and biopharmaceuticals to these patients and who probably hasn't intervened much beyond just kind of a physical examination of the patients etc in terms of how much they touch the patient to uh if they actually have to kind of refer a patient to an implantable surgery that's a bigger mental hindrance or a mental hurdle that they need to overcome to actually refer a patient to therapy so there is a patient aspect and then there is a physician aspect as well so do you want to touch on that between what you're seeing in the industry at this point of time and i just kind of quote quoted two examples for vagals but you can pick any example that you can think of victor and then just tell us about what are the considerations from a physician point of view if you need to kind of take this up right. uh, or choose between an invasive and a non-invasive right. uh kind of stimulation paradigm yeah you 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 gave a very good um example that some doctors are working typically in hospitals in the same department with surgeons like cardiologists so there there is typically a surgeon on the in the department so it makes it very easy to work within the department and especially it helps to um in terms of reimbursement because it all the money goes to one department so they don't have to split it between departments because reimbursement is an important issue so they will have no qualms about referring to a colleague in the same department well in terms of rheumatologist as you mentioned you you would have to return them uh, refer to let's say ENT surgeon right typically because ENT's and in in this case also another thing is heart is pretty close to the neck so the surgeons are familiar with the territory while in rheumatology they're mostly working with arms and legs so they're not so familiar with the neck and therefore they they have more qualms about doing ENT surgery and so they will definitely try to refer maybe to another department yeah yeah ent or neurosurgery yeah yeah absolutely neurosurgery right so basically they would have to really go out of their way to figure out how to do it it's not something that's routinely done this is a great place to stop and give a shout out again to our sponsors sometimes it might feel repetitive to you but honestly when we approached our sponsors with the idea for this season's podcast they said yes immediately and more importantly they felt that it was important to talk about the matters that we talk about in this podcast as nobody else is doing it and they agreed so check out cortex silicon cuff electrodes they are so amazing and i must say 
that almost 90% of my publications in the last decade has employed their cuffs in our preclinical studies. You can browse through their catalog and contact them to chat about their products. They have a range of cuffs going from sizes as small as 150 microns internal diameter to 6 millimeters. 150 microns, that's what precision tools to enable research means. You can get designs from tunnel cuffs to sling cuffs to spiral cuffs to helical cuffs of varying sizes and for various nerves. Or if you know exactly what you want after looking through the catalog, head over to the link in the episode description to order them through the ShamFR website. Finally, Certec. If Cortec makes preclinical tools that enabled all of my research while at Kilvani, Certec is your choice for clinical grade devices. Check out their website, certecmed.com, for a full list of their services that they offer. Now, let's get back to the discussion with Victor. Go for it in terms of the of using that example for for referring to talking about the differences from a physician perspective. And in, in this case, also, another thing is heart is pretty close to the neck. So the surgeons are familiar with the territory, while in rheumatology, they're mostly working with arms and legs. So they're not so familiar with the neck. And therefore, they, they have more qualms about doing ENT surgery. And so they will definitely try to refer maybe to another department when you're in surgery. Right. So basically, they would have to really go out of their way to figure out how to do it. It's not something that's routinely done uh, in their department. Um, if we take another example, for example, there is a sacral nerve stimulation approved for fecal incontinence and for bladder. There, both of these departments have... Right. Which, which is, again, a great example for the listeners here because sacral root is not the only way to, to kind of stimulate the nerves uh, or to provide neuromodulation to the bladder uh, and the reflex mechanisms there. There have been studies with other kind of more peripheral targets. Uh, and one of the things that I think is always said is, I think this is a great example of how long something takes to, to translate. Uh, if you actually have the implanting location to be different from where the urologists are actually trained to operate, which is more in the inguinal regions uh, for more scientific terms or, or in the pelvic lower pelvic regions, whereas the sacred root implantation is always at the back, right? So therefore, the urologists uh, are not usually trained to, or at least we're not trained to look unimplant leads in the back. But over time, uh, because Medtronic for a long period of time was the only product on the market, they basically were able to build a whole industry at, uh, at their own pace that is valued at this point of time. I think it could be in excess of 700 million at this point of the last time I looked, that was a few years ago. Uh, but it could be a pretty big market and a big chunk of their neuromodulation business, right? Same thing with what Axonics is all doing. So you can actually train physicians to do it, but it just takes a long period of time. And if you're not a big company, and if you're a startup, and if you're an investor looking for an exit, I think a lot of venture capitalists will basically look at at the bladder area as an example that that there are already enough players and the efficacy is kind of partial and there are already people out there. So why should we kind of go in and invest in that? But having said that, I think the play, uh, I think you, you kind of know that uh, very well, that even though there are other peripheral options like stimulation of the pudendal nerve targets, 
or the branches, etc. That might be more in the in the regions, the pelvic regions in the front rather than at the back. But I think those are things that they might actually potentially provide greater responder rate. Patients might actually, there are studies that actually shows that with the pyramidal nerve stimulation, patients prefer it. And there's a higher responder rate compared to kind of sacral stimulation, uh, which is 50 to 60%, uh, whereas with pedendal nerve stimulation uh, that has been done in the in the Great Lakes area a few years ago, close to more than 90 to 95% of the people actually preferred the pedendal stimulation over sacral stimulation. This is all old papers, right? But still, there has been very little innovation simply because I think the way the business people see it has to match with that. And Medtronic buying a bunch of pedental patents and then shelving it also kind of killed off the competition in a way. And therefore, there aren't that many new players. So I think whenever you develop treatments in a novel area like this for a new nerve target, I think it's important for people and the investors to kind of really understand what is it that they are stimulating? How is it that they are stimulating? Who's going to be using it? And how are we actually, who's going to be referring the patients to be using it? Uh, because in the case of RA, uh, arthritis, if the rheumatologist has to refer it to a neurosurgeon, what's the incentive for the neurosurgeon apart from just implanting and sending the patients back? Because it's just a routine referral checkup, which there is, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody's here to make money and earn a living. So there is very little physician incentive to refer because the rheumatologist doesn't know much about how to titrate nerves. The neurosurgeon who ultimately knows it is just doing this implantation surgery and sending the patient because he doesn't have an active role in management. Uh, so these are all the various considerations that, that I think companies will actually have to undertake. Uh, physicians always think about it, but they don't explicitly talk about it. Venture capitalists absolutely talk about it, but they don't make it public, right? I mean, I think this is all... And whenever you see companies not able to raise the money, etc., it's because these are the hurdles that they need to overcome. And, and there is somebody there who thinks one consideration is overwhelming in one direction than the other, and that kind of determines the fate of the company and the fate of the innovation. So I think that's one of the key things uh, that I think I've wanted to people to understand as well. Finally, I think there was another aspect as well that you wanted to talk about, Victor, which is reimbursement and marketing aspects of that. Uh, so let, let's touch on that uh, here between invasive neuromodulation and kind of transcutaneous or non-invasive neuromodulation. Yeah, and I have some experience with that, speaking with VCs on this topic. Uh, and of course, we all realize that in order for innovations to become uh, FDA approved, you need VC investment. And, and the hurdle here is that VCs ask you for what's your uh, marketing strategy. That's the first question they ask. And those two strat the, the strategy to market is very different for class two devices, TENS devices, let's say, versus class three implantable uh, devices, which require a PMA, a clinical trial. Uh, and so if we're talking about TENS devices, the issue there is, yes, they're very easy to approve because there is a 510K mechanism for many, even implantable devices. Uh, like, let's say, if you don't have an uh, active stimulator, just a lead implanted, you can get 510k approval. There's already a few companies uh, that pursuing that path. Uh, but if you class three, fully implanted, yes, it's a big, uh, expensive, about $50 million clinical trial. So, but VCs actually seems like 
looking, I'm judging by the investment in the last couple of years, still seem to prefer investing in um, implantable. And I think the main reason here is reimbursement. So reimbursement here is, uh, and I have some numbers. So for example, if you were to, to uh, use a transcutaneous stimulation for like say pain or o- overactive bladder, reimbursement codes right now in the US are about $130 per therapy. So when you go to the doctor, they have to spend maybe an hour with you and they're only being paid $130. For US, it's very little. So doctors really have little incentive to do this. While um, surgeons, of course, uh, get for one hour surgery, they're being paid like $10,000, including all the surgical uh, personnel, I guess, $10,000, $15,000 for implantation surgery. So they're a much more reasonable expense. Uh, and in fact, just to give you an example, Inspire just got a new code, which is a, uh, basically stimulating a superficial nerve in the neck. Uh, and uh, implantation of that system is uh, right now covered at $25,000. That's including the device and the surgery. So my guess is device about ten thousand and fifteen for surgery, something like that. Um, so that's much better finances and much better return on, on investment for VCs. So it, and and if you look at, at the market cap uh, for Inspire, it's seven billion right now. Even though, interestingly enough, Inspire is still in the red. There is, because they have to pay so much for training surgeons, as you said, it's a novel surgery. They spend a lot of, on training surgeons and marketing. They're even though they're so successful, they're they still cannot make enough money to really pay to, to re- for reimbursement. But I think that will change because they're monopoly at this point. So eventually, they will have much bigger ma- market penetration. Same thing with Navro, which is still in the red, over even though it. It has about 15, 16% of the market, which is a large market. And even though they've, they've had this 15% for about five years, they're still in the red. But in, despite that, they're still valued a few billion. So investors like that. So investors really probably don't care so much when you become, go into the black versus how much, uh, once you do IPO, how much you're worth. Because at that point, investors really leave the company. Uh, so, so jury is still out how successful these companies like Nevro and Inspire will be in the long term, meaning that because they still will have this ongoing cost of training surgeons. But at least from investment point of view, it's a better way of uh, from investors' point of view. So at least right now they're more happy with implantable. Seems like yeah. And then there is another one in the case of company evaluation as well, which we will probably. Uh, <laughs> I think it's probably best that we stay away from it for the sake of time. Simply because I think companies will basically get valued for everything under the sun when in actuality, they only work in a small subset of patients. But the valuation somehow, the the analysts who are basically valuing these or, or setting it up, etc., they kind of have some pretty unreal valuations, assuming that it will cater to every single patient with the disorder, which we know is not the case, right? So there are all of these considerations that, that people will have to think about when when they're actually thinking about a particular therapy and not everybody is qualified to think about it. Uh, but I think just having these type of of discussions and, and having things in mind between just because there is a new company or an existing company that is stimulating nerve in one way, it I think it has to be taken on a case-by-case basis depending on which nerve that they're targeting, how they are targeting that particular nerve, what does the efficacy 
kind of look like in comparison to how much they are work, uh, how much the side effects are or the tolerability side effects are um, or issues are um, to ease of use from a physician perspective uh, or from a patient, ease of use from a patient perspective, uh, ease of applicability from a physician perspective in terms of referrals and, and all of those to actually compliance, 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 and compliance right? Because there are so many implantable systems where patient will actually have to activate with a battery. Uh, with with a handheld kind of device or the cell phone or, or whatever. It. So what if they forget? What yeah. if they actually? So there is a there is a compliance issue even in in invasive therapy, but at least once it's there, it's done, and you don't have to. You just have to worry about switching it on and off rather than placing it in the right place or ensuring that it works, etc. Uh, that's great. So there is one other question that I wanted to talk about in terms of reimbursement, and I'm curious about. What is your take on that, but also about what are the trends that you're seeing in the industry at this point of time? Which is, it used to be thought that most of the companies, for them to be getting to the market, at least from the device perspective, I think FDA cares most about safety. That's what you basically get your CE mark on. Uh, at least definitely in Europe, the CE mark is based on device safety. Uh, the FDA approval is a combination of both safety and efficacy, but largely safety. We know that there are examples in the past, like for example, with the Entromedics device and and other things, even though they kind of missed the primary endpoints on the pivotal trial, they were given FDA approval because they were safe from a perspective of a cohort of patients perspective in the clinical trial, etc. But that's not the same thing in terms of, of of reimbursement and making money out of it and, and ensuring that the company is profitable. So what is the trend that you're seeing at this point of time in terms of companies shooting for a different type of clinical trials compared to what they used to before in terms of getting adequate reimbursement? Um, well, a couple of trends. One is that for clinical trials, I think FDA is now much more cognizant of the placebo effect and the the, the impossibility essentially of get, of completely removing that from therapy because for a while for several years they really insisted on doing clinical trials where you would have sham implants uh, where basically full implants but without turning them on and I think that's really quite unethical for patients to go through all of this and not turning them on. So I think they, they realize that the sham effect is to some degree real. And so we have to live with it. And if device is producing its therapy with some degree of sham effectiveness, it's fine. So they, I think they loosened a little bit this restriction on the trial setup. But they still require rather large numbers for efficacy. So right now, I th- my, another trend is it looks in the last few years, the clinical trial numbers are gone up quite a bit. So it used to be like 100 patients was enough for PMA trial. Now it's more like 200 patients. Uh, that's more typical. That, that means that uh, the cost of the trial goes from about 25 million to 50 million. So that means that you really have to do maybe another round of investment. So a lot of companies now have difficulties. So if you might know, uh, for example, Setpoint and uh, CBRX and other companies had to do these additional rounds just to finish their clinical trials. Um, and one company, um, and the, and the team actually didn't, it was almost finished with their clinical trial. They just need maybe another year of finishing it and they couldn't get another round of funding. And so they had to stop and basically fail 
even though the data was very promising. So this this very last uh, push of getting enough patients, uh, getting like 200 patients could be disastrous uh, if you don't get funding, enough funding. Um, well, luckily for both CVRX and, and Setpoint, they, they were able to raise these rounds. Yeah, so I think those are the, the only exception being if you're in sleep apnea, then I think you can actually raise even even you can even go the traditional kind of biotech route and actually IPO early even before you get a lot of clinical data uh, or pivotal clinical data. That's another trend. Yes, that's actually a new trend. Also, notice the last couple of years, like uh, Neuropace and other companies which are still don't have approval from FDA, they're doing IPOs. That's right. That's a new trend as well. That's very common trend in pharma and biotech, but in medical device, that's yeah. Really I mean, in the case of psychedelic companies, even if you had a preclinical lead. That's basically big news, and I'm I'm just go and look at some of the news there because we just did the documentary, and we kind of I kind of follow both the areas pretty closely. Like companies get a, a lead compound picked, and that basically shows some preclinical efficacy, and they just go it's like it's a big press release, and and it's like everybody's going, hey, this is great. I'm like, it's just animal data, yeah. This is in rodents, exactly. right? This is in some disease of a rodent. Exactly, I mean, exactly. But, but I think the, the, disease, the, right? this is this is what that type of craziness brings as well. If you IPO too soon, you're basically putting out information that are half-baked, that don't necessarily or that may or may not necessarily translate into clinical setting. Whereas I think the med tech or the neuromodulation implantable area is basically too much on the other side where VCs expect too much they basically want a lot of data uh, and they are willing to invest only small amounts of money. Uh, and then depending on the disease area, you basically have to get a, a recruit a lot of patients to obtain the data that you need to ultimately get the physicians to, to buy into the therapy. Because ultimately, it's not just about FDA approval. You also need to get the, the future physicians to actually buy into the data. If the data is in- inadequate, they are less likely to actually get uh, refer the patients to this particular therapy so that's where i think this type of data so there is one argument that the trials would actually take more money to do of course it will but it's also because of the fact that in the disease areas that, that these companies are trying to go into if they need to get reimbursement then they need the physicians to speak to the insurance companies to justify the proposal and if physicians will only do it if there is enough evidence against some of their existing standard of care etc so that's where i think it's all in a good trend but i think people are just learning on the go which makes it for a very interesting path uh, and a journey for all of us in the area so i i would say that in pharma of course there's a lot of hype in medical device especially implantable neuromodulation we have i don't know what's the opposite of hype <laughs> we have that uh, and I think we, that might change in the next year or so once we have uh, big uh, sales. I, I really expect the next couple of years we'll see a sale of Setpoint and Saluda, some other big companies. So, so once that happens, and they will be probably selling for billions, uh, we will really see that market valuation as a whole will increase and we'll hopefully not reach hype levels, but at yeah. least normal yeah. levels. You mentioning Saluda just brings a very interesting thought in my mind, right? So I think there is also a new trend in the industry where people are going after, even for the traditional vagal nerve stimulation, and people are actually shooting for greater selectivity of nerve fibers at the cervical vagus level. So we kind of know the the recent kind of 
announcement or the focus by Merck on focusing on on their uh, they've taken a very interesting route, right? So they've taken into into a slightly different difficult therapy areas to translate, but also they've gone with a more kind of defining a higher resolution. No, I'm talking about Saluda because they are actually talking about closed loop therapy. So you Saluda is on the spinal cord, but I think there is more news. I'm referring to greater news on the the other side. Like, for example, Neuroloop is basically trying to target the the presser or the blood pressure kind of presser fibers in the vagal nerve by using a more selective cuff, which means... Or, or CBRX going after an Correct. eye target. So that's right? that's the company that, that Merck had invested in. And then you think about the, the hurdle that they need to overcome, which is using a, a higher resolution cuff on the cervical vagus with a cardiologist who is not necessarily trained to pick which nerve fiber is, is because he or she is not trained in neurophysiology. Maybe maybe they'll use AI. Who knows? In a few years, maybe it will be this. Yeah, which is again an interesting one. So who... Uh, it's then in the cases that about the fact about data and a whole lot of other things, uh, which is all a very interesting thing to watch. I don't want you to kind of make a justification or anything. I'm just kind of bringing it up. I don't have enough information. Yeah, I think Neuroloop is not in clinical yeah, trials. Yeah, I, I, so I, we'll I, I don't think any see. of those companies yeah. are in clinical trials at this point of time. But it's still really interesting. And then there is a effect of materials and stuff. And then. When you think about novel materials, I think the question is somebody needs to show that against existing materials. And uh, that's going to be a very interesting translation as well. And also convince uh, FDA because FDA is very, uh, whenever you say the word nano to FDA, <laughs> it raises their hairs. So graphene might be one of those difficult materials to approve. Yeah, but, and, and I think the proof of the pudding is going to be what other material benefit is it going to offer in terms of efficacy? that will warrant people to actually move to a different material. I mean, that I think uh, either it has to be that or it has to be smaller implants, etc. I think there have been things that have been uh, claims that have been made based on existing information, public information that's put out that it makes for a sm- lower energy, etc. But we'll have to wait and see what that means in terms of, of translatability at this point of time, because I know both you and I kind of care about translatability and clinical development and what it means for the patients and the physicians all the time so it's it's going to be fascinating to watch the area on that on that side awesome anything else that we've missed victor no it's good discussion thank you for that all right that's the end of the episode but if you made it this far I admire your tenacity and stamina. Thank you. Why don't you give us a like? And more importantly, if you find the information useful, share it via your social network and to our friends on Twitter or LinkedIn. Frankly, that doesn't help you, but it helps us to reach more people because they know that somebody else has listened to this episode before they have done it. And that view matters. You've been listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. We want to thank our donors, Certec Medical and Cortec Neuro, without whose help the production of these episodes would not be possible. Special thanks to Mr. Swaminathan Thiringyanasamadam, who performed part of the sound design and also performed the mixing and the mastering of the episode. 
The script was written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. The transcript for this episode is available at our website scrapspodcast.com. The interviews and the content of the episode are property of Scraps and should be reproduced only with permission from Arun or Jojo. And if you liked our work, you can help us bring more of such episodes by donating as little as $5 once or every month. And if you think about it, it is as small as buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Please visit scrapspodcast.com slash donate to do this.